0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Robert C. Hockett, Professor of Law at Cornell University, who discusses his view that President Biden should invoke the 14th Amendment to neutralize the Republican Party's threat to block raising the nation's debt ceiling. Kika Matos, president of the National Immigration Law Center, who assesses President Biden's new immigration policies that impose new regulations, making it more difficult for people seeking asylum in the U.S. And Jason Stanley, Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and author of the book How Fascism Works, who examines the Republican Party's war against democracy as they work to impose minority rule. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: Over 30,000 people in Canada's western provinces were forced to flee their homes after an outbreak of spring wildfires. Alberta's premier, Danielle Smith, declared a state of emergency and oil firms announced temporary shutdowns of operations, slashing production by more than 125,000 barrels of oil per day. Canada is the world's fourth largest producer of crude oil, and about 80% of Canada's supply comes from Alberta. 100 fires broke out in the province amid unusually dry and warm conditions. Many routes to the provincial capital of Edmonton were blocked as residents sought shelter. Overall, 1 million acres have burned across western Canada this spring, leading to school closings and the evacuation of long-term care facilities. In recent years, western Canada has repeatedly been hit by extreme weather due to climate change. In 2021, record high temperatures in British Columbia caused 500 deaths and destruction of rural communities. In industrial towns across the nation, long freight trains block key intersections and school crossings, as these trains often stop for hours or days, waiting for rail yards to clear. In Hammond, Indiana, near Chicago, young students are forced to climb over or under freight cars at their own peril. According to ProPublica, local municipal governments and schools often have little power to force the freight trains to move. Students attending Hess Elementary School in Hammond must make a choice of either scrambling under or around rail cars or not going to school at all. Teachers and students are often late arriving for classes due to the time it takes to get around stopped trains that can often be up to two miles long. U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg expressed shock after watching a ProPublica video recording of kids climbing over and under freight cars stopped at street intersections. Buttigieg said that he expects to announce a new $3 billion Department of Transportation fund designed to alleviate blocked rail crossings. On May 4th, Teamsters Joint Council 42 in Southern California filed an unfair labor practice complaint against Amazon for using an exploitive subcontracting model in dealing with its fleet of delivery contractors and drivers. The complaint accuses Amazon of failing to execute a collective bargaining agreement and threatening to fire five workers engaged in protected union activity. In late April, workers at an Amazon delivery contractor, Battle-Tested Strategies, or BTS, voted to join the Teamsters union in what was seen as an important breakthrough to unionize Amazon delivery drivers. Eighty-four drivers ratified a union contract days later, which boosted their hourly pay by $10 with enhanced benefits. However, the same day that the Teamsters announced their tentative agreement with BTS, Amazon terminated their contract with the company, maintaining that the subcontractor had a poor performance record and had been notified of its termination before the union agreement was reached. But the company's owner, Jonathan Irvin, disputes Amazon's claims, maintaining that Amazon retaliated against him because he supported the union drive. According to the American Prospect, the Teamsters organizing drive opens new possibilities to launch a legal challenge against Amazon's model of delivery subcontracting while denying that these drivers are Amazon employees. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manso.
0: When Republicans took control of the U.S. House of Representatives last November, it was a given that the extremist wing of the GOP would once again try to hold the U.S. economy hostage by refusing to raise the federal debt limit as they did under President Obama in 2011. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is demanding that in exchange for raising the debt ceiling, President Biden and the Democrats must give in to their demands to slash federal spending to fiscal year 2022 levels, cutting $131 billion from current spending, as well as imposing severe cuts totaling $3.6 trillion over the next 10 years. The GOP is also demanding the imposition of new work requirements on low-income Americans in order to receive government benefits, specifically food stamps and Medicaid. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned again on May 16th that time is running out for Congress to lift the debt ceiling and avert a default on the nation's debt, which the Secretary says would be catastrophic for the economy. Your reporter spoke with Robert C. Hockett, Edward Cornell Professor of Law at Cornell University, who discusses his view that President Biden should invoke the 14th Amendment in order to neutralize the Republican Party's threat to block legislation to raise the nation's debt ceiling.
2: What I've been arguing, and a number of others have argued as well, uh, is that basically Congress should simply recognize that the debt ceiling is sort of no longer a thing and repeal it. And if they don't do that, then President Biden and other members of Congress who are sane should simply ignore it and then let the sort of rump faction of highly conservative Jim Crow Republicans who are once again wielding it as a sort of hostage Um, Put it on them, put the onus on them to try to challenge the president and the rest of Congress, including the Senate, in court. My guess is that the court might not even take the case. It might not be considered justiciable. It might be, in other words, what the court calls a political question, in which case nothing happens at all. Or if the Supreme Court does end up taking that case, they will without a doubt strike the debt ceiling, the 1917 law altogether, recognizing it as all that the rest of us do as having been superseded by the 1974 Act.
0: Professor Hockett, what, in your view, are the consequences if Joe Biden caves in? What happens to the country if he negotiates with the Republicans and negotiates something like harsher work requirements for working families receiving federal aid, which, which has already been talked about, as I heard in recent reports?
2: So, first of all, of course, he'll be rewarding fiscal terrorism, right? He'll be rewarding fiscal hostage taking. And as we all know, that just tends to encourage more of the same. Indeed, the current crop of Republicans are probably doing this precisely because President Obama caved in 2011 at a time when Joe Biden was vice president. Now, the vice president then and the president now is often said to have learned the lesson right, of that uh, rather, you know, sort of unfortunate uh, caving uh, or capitulation by President Obama in 20, uh, 2011, which is precisely why he's been saying this time that he's not willing to negotiate. So the first thing, again, then, that you would see uh, would be, I think, you know, continued and further hostage-taking uh, going forward, including by next November or so, since they're talking about only raising the, the ceiling for a few months. Uh, the second thing uh, you would see is basically the sucking out of all of the life uh, from the Biden agenda, right? All of the accomplishments That the Biden administration has indeed made, with the help of course of Democratic majorities in both the House and Senate, at least when you include the Vice President in the Senate, Um, all of those accomplishments would be undercut and indeed many of them would be lost. And what you would see, I think then, is essentially um, an economy thrown into recession. And that, of course, would then result in tremendous macroeconomic doldrums of 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 just the worst sort meaning then that going into 2024, Biden's prospects of being reelected would be very slim indeed. And in all signs are that with the alternative to Biden's becoming uh, re- being reelected in 2024 would be would be a return of uh, the dictator, Donald Trump, with a vengeance. And, um, you know, if we think that the first Trump term was was dreadful, um, you can only imagine right what the second term might be uh, like. So I think it would be very ill advised for Mr. Biden, both personally and for the nation uh, to capitulate in any way on this, particularly given the fact that, again, this is ultimately a bluff by McCarthy and the rump Republicans whom he's, uh, in effect, being held hostage himself by, because if, the, first of all, the Supreme Court probably wouldn't enforce uh, any attempt by the Republicans to force Biden to violate his own office by defaulting on the national debt in the first place. And if they did, they would, without a doubt, strike the debt ceiling. So, again, I've been urging that Biden call the bluff of the Republicans and simply ignore the debt ceiling, say it's not a thing, say it was sidelined by the 1974 uh, legislation, that it's not really, um, you know, that effectively this sort of AR-15 that these rump Republicans are trying to sort of wield against The U.S. fiscal state uh, is effectively just a a children's toy, a sort of a cap gun or a a water pistol at worst.
0: That was Robert C. Hockett, professor of law at Cornell University and a senior counsel at Westwood Capital. Find a link to his recent New York Times op-ed piece titled, This is What Would Happen If Biden Ignores the Debt Ceiling and Calls McCarthy's Bluff, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.com org. May 11th marked the end of Title 42, a public health regulation put in place by the Trump administration in 2020 that excluded people from entering the country during the COVID pandemic. Many observers believe that the Trump administration used Title 42 to keep asylum seekers out of the country as part of Trump's anti-immigrant agenda. As a result, tens of thousands of asylum seekers lived in Mexican border towns in dangerous and squalid conditions while awaiting hearings on their asylum claims. Whereas in past decades, migrants, overwhelmingly from Mexico and Central America, tried to cross the border without being detected, in recent years, many of those seeking asylum in the U.S. now include people from Haiti, Cuba, Venezuela, and other nations in the Middle East and Africa who turn themselves into border agents to have their asylum claims processed. The number of migrants seeking asylum, which they have the legal right to do under domestic and international law, has increased sevenfold over the past decade. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Kika Matos, the new president of the National Immigration Law Center, which advocates for the rights of low-income immigrants. Matos spent several days at the U.S. southern border in early May before and after the end of Title 42. Here Matos discusses what she calls President Biden's new asylum ban and what can be done to build a more just, transparent, and humane immigration system.
3: So the administration, uh, in anticipation of the end of Title 42, they moved to stand up a new set of policies that we describe as a new asylum ban. And these policies are really intended to drive away uh, refugees seeking asylum in the United States. We have obligations both under international law and domestic law to process asylum seekers in the United States under our law, you are eligible for asylum if you can establish a well-founded fear of actual persecution on the basis of your race, your religion, your national origin, your member in a particular social group, or your political views. That is really the criteria that the U.S. is bound to consider when people seek asylum. And you uh, have the right to enter the United States Outside of a port of entry, you can certainly fly in, but you can also cross the border outside of a port of entry and turn yourself into the authorities and say that you're seeking asylum. The Biden administration, as soon as Title 42 was lifted last week, they imposed a new set of criteria for people who want to seek asylum in the United States, which is contrary to the law. It is really a set of hurdles to make it really difficult for people to be able to access asylum in the United States. So first, you have to come in through an official port of entry, right? which means that if you are desperately fleeing violence in your country and you cross the border outside of a port of entry, you're not eligible for asylum. The second thing is you have to register and seek an appointment using this uh, CBP-1 app. So it means that if you want to seek asylum, right, you must come in through a port of entry, but you also need to seek an appointment before you can come to the U.S. side. So if you don't have a phone, you can't afford a phone, you don't know how to download an app, those are barriers against you. The other problem with the CBP app is that it is very glitchy and it has difficulty recognizing in terms of face recognition, recognizing black faces. Third criteria is that if you come in through any other country before you get to the border, you have to have sought and been denied asylum in another country. All of those things are the new hurdles and the new criteria that the administration has put into place for people wanting to seek asylum in the United States.
1: On Thursday, the numbers were up. Uh, they had processed 10,000 people, I think, but then they were down to only 6,000 on Friday. You know, I know a lot of people, I guess, in the media was kind of expecting this horde of people to come through. So how did it go for, from your direct experience, uh, observation, and, and were you surprised by what happened?
3: I was not surprised, and I will say that the image that you just presented of these hordes of brown and black people who are looking to illegally come into the United States as part of the narrative of extreme right-wing organizations in the United States. And unfortunately, that narrative has become normative. It's a narrative that we should reject because it is a very xenophobic, deeply racist narrative. The other thing that I think people need to understand is that the reason why we have so many people patiently waiting on the Mexican side of the border, wanting to come to the United States, is that they want to do the right thing. They want to be able to avail themselves of the process that the United States offers. I am heartbroken over the Biden administration's asylum policies and immigration policies, particularly because... One of the promises that Biden made when he was campaigning for office was to restore the asylum policies. And what he has done with this asylum ban, in essence, is replicate the asylum bans that Trump put into place when he was in power. We have an obligation under domestic law to process anyone seeking asylum. Notwithstanding, many of the folks that we met with have been in encampments where the conditions are not fit for human living. Because they want to be compliant and follow the laws that the U.S. now has in place. Why is it that despite, and we're talking about public opinion polls that have been conducted repeatedly over the years. So despite the evidence that we have in front of us, that Americans support a path to citizenship for the undocumented and want a, a silent process that is fair and is just and is humane. Why is it that politicians are refusing to follow the will of the Americans and using immigration as a political issue.
0: That was Kika Matos, President of the National Immigration Law Center. Learn more about the group and their proposals for immigration reform by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. During his CNN town hall television appearance on May 10th, Donald Trump repeated the same lies and insults he's been spewing since he lost the 2020 presidential election. In the 75 minutes given to the twice-impeached president, now the target of multiple criminal investigations, Trump encouraged Republicans to default on the nation's debt, celebrated the failed January 6 coup attempt he incited as a beautiful day promised to pardon January 6 rioters, and he again defamed E. Jean Carroll, just one day after a jury awarded her $5 million for Trump's sexual abuse and defamation. All this took place before a New Hampshire audience, hand-picked by CNN, that enthusiastically applauded and cheered every Trump lie and slur. As Trump and several other long-shot Republican candidates vie for their party's presidential nomination, GOP-controlled states are proposing and passing public policy measures that either target specific groups of Americans for repression and stigmatization or attack the very foundations of democracy and personal liberty. The authoritarian and fascist underpinnings of these initiatives are seen in laws that suppress the vote of people of color, gerrymander voting maps, criminalize abortion, ban books, censor public school teaching of America's history of slavery and institutional racism, stigmatize LGBTQ and trans youth, impose fines on journalists with whom politicians disagree, repeal child labor laws, remove elected officeholders who refuse to carry out oppressive policies, overturn election results, and majority-supported referendums, and much more. Your reporter spoke with Jason Stanley. Jacob Erwaski, professor of philosophy at Yale University and author of the book How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Here, Professor Stanley examines the Republicans' war against Democratic accountability and governance as they work to impose minority rule.
4: Isn't it wild how there are so many different things happening at the same time? To, to understand that, you need to step back and look, how are these different things related? These different things are related because they're all attacks on freedom, freedom to choose for a woman, uh, freedom to have a same-sex same relationship, be normal, freedom to vote. Uh, they're all attacks on kinds of freedom, and the structure of the attacks, the ideology that links these together, that goes after that, elevates the white Christian nationalism at the heart of our Jim Crow past. Uh, that elevates the white Christian nationalism in education and voting in all of these areas. The concept one needs here is fascism. The U.S. fascism took this racial fascist form, uh, anti-immigration. It, you know the the panics over immigration. You know the the structure of great replacement theory that immigrants are coming to replace real Americans and vote instead of us. A Trump in his speech went back to the old themes targeting black majority or cities with black, large black populations as the sources of voter fraud. That's the supposed justification between these absolutely absurd uh, voter suppression moves. Florida just, you know, outdoes itself each month, it seems, uh, with these voter suppression tactics of electoral police to tackle a non-existent problem of voter fraud. So it's an attack on democracy, an attack on education, an attack on LGBT, and they're all happening together. It's the same people. And and they're not stopping at high school education. They're going after universities. They're going after academic freedom. At each stage, the minimizers say, oh, they're just targeting you know elementary schools, and then they target high schools for uh, education about LD, LGBT issues. And, People say they're they're not targeting universities, and they move to universities and make it illegal to talk about critical race theory or or LGBT issues. So uh, they eliminate tenure. They target academic freedom. We've seen this before. It's the rollback of democracy, authoritarianism, attacking education attacking democracy. Fascism explains the violent militias. It also harkens back to U.S. history, of course. The Confederacy, the the Jim Crow era in particular, uh, where some of these structures were laid down. So there's a kind of familiarity about this. But we've let authoritarianism happen in state after state. Look at Wisconsin the governor voted in was a democrat and the legislature met in a night session to remove all the powers from the governor we've let all this happen we've let we've let states that are 50-50 divided become dominated by republican supermajority in legislatures none of that is democratic it's like having a bunch of hungaries in the middle of the united states and then they venerate hungary's autocratic neo-fascist leader as the model so that's the situation we
0: face. You know, I, I did want to ask you to comment on one feature of this crisis we're facing. The recent CNN town hall meeting with Donald Trump was really, a, in the view of many people, a 90-minute platform for this twice-impeached president who incited a violent insurrection at the Capitol January 6th, and was just convicted of sexual assault and defamation to spew his long list of lies and insults, further arousing hatred and fear in his base? Has CNN and other media outlets normalized Trump and the GOP's fascist agenda after all we've been through? And I would ask you to comment further on how you think our mainstream media can more responsibly cover Trump as he runs for president next year.
4: The first question you asked was rhetorical. I mean, of course, it was a normalization. And, of course, it was repeating all the worst mistakes of 2016 and then some. Uh, So where they breathlessly covered every move of Trump, like it was giving him billions in free media, like covering his rallies. What will he do now? Uh, So uh, as far as Trump's speech, he just like brilliantly echoed these fascist themes. The, The January 6th becomes a great patriotic moment, a heroic moment like the Beer Hall Putsch in Germany in 1923. Ashley Babbitt becomes a horse vessel, the stormtrooper who was killed, supposedly killed by communists, who became this uh, hero of Nazi propaganda that they sang about in the horse vessel elite. And uh, Ashley Babbitt was shot by a black police officer. So if you look at what Trump said, he said, the thug who killed Ashley Babbitt. So it's a clear reference to race. It's this, he's setting up Ashley Babbitt as this pure martyr for his cause. It's, uh, you know, it's almost like he read a history book. (laughs) But uh, the main, the number one indicator of severe democratic backsliding or loss of democracy is uh, a coup that goes unpunished.
0: That was Jason Stanley, Jacob Erwaski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and author of the book How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Find links to Professor Stanley's recent articles and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPPM in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, WYAP in Clay, West Virginia, KOWA in Olympia, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mika This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.